0: Hello and welcome to the Indiana Energy Crossroads Podcast. I am Jared Knobla, Executive Director of the Indiana Conservative Alliance for Energy.
1: And I'm Jonathan Cobb, the Field Operations Director for the Indiana Land and Liberty Coalition.
0: Each week, we'll bring you a guest from the renewable energy sector who can provide our listeners with valuable information about clean and cheap energy and why it should matter to conservative Hoosiers. In this week's podcast, we speak with former Indianapolis Mayor Greg Ballard. After 23-year career in the Marine Corps and retiring as a lieutenant colonel, Greg Ballard returned home to Indianapolis in 2001. In 2007, he ran a successful campaign to become the 48th mayor of Indianapolis, subsequently serving two terms. While mayor, he became a trustee for the U.S. Conference of Mayors and was known for his boldness and innovation by his fellow mayors. He is a graduate of Indiana University, holds a master's in military science, and has been awarded an honorary doctorate from both Butler University and Marion University. A Persian Gulf War veteran, he continues to be active in veteran causes. He is a member of the Indiana Veterans Affairs Commission and a board member for the Indiana War Memorial Foundation. He is currently a visiting fellow for civic leadership and mayoral archives at the University of Indianapolis. Greg and his wife, Winnie, have been married for 35 years and have two adult children. Mr. Mayor... Thank you for joining us today.
2: Thanks, Jared. Appreciate it very much. Great, great.
0: Well, first, I'd like to talk about um, just when did you become a clean energy advocate, and what brought you to the table with uh, renewable energy and electric vehicles?
2: Yeah, that actually was no aha moment. People think I had one when I was in the Gulf War back in 1991, but actually, when you think about it, there was really no alternative to what we were doing over there, which was making sure the oil supply for the entire world was still available to the global economy. So you couldn't really think of uh, something else that we could have been doing at the time. But when I was the mayor, things started changing a little bit. The, the long-awaited uh, battery for vehicles was coming forth, and I started studying that a little bit. And then, uh, then I, there was a moment where I thought, gee, we can we can look at transitioning our, our city fleet And if the numbers work out. And we, we found out that in some cases, not all cases, some cases it did make a lot of sense for us, so we announced that conversion. Uh, and then... When you look at the other uh, renewable types that are out there with solar and wind and uh, hydro and all those other things, well, they work. Uh, they're getting cheaper, as, as I think everybody knows. And I think if we were starting with a blank piece of paper right now, we would start with solar and wind, I do believe, as long as battery was there. I mean, the battery storage is kind of key to all this, and that's why Elon Musk and people like him, uh, CATL over in China, and uh, other people that are working on batteries – are very important to, to this discussion because I think at a certain point uh, it's all going to be solar, wind, and hydro if battery storage gets to a certain point. So we have to get, we have to understand this. If uh, And with, but like I say, if we were starting with a blank piece of paper right now, I think we'd start with solar, wind, and hydro.
1: Mm-hmm. And we've seen uh, some local projects in Indiana actually start to develop their own uh, battery technology. In Henry County, they've proposed uh, around 30 megawatts of battery storage as well for their uh, proposed solar project there. So there's been some interesting developments in the last few years as well.
2: Yeah, IPL's had uh, re- one recently, too, that they're trying to tie into the grid. Mm-hmm. So that those things are occurring. And Indiana actually has some, particularly on the vehicle side, has some history to all of this, That uh, more so than any other state, I would think, when the uh, – the General Motors EV One started uh, quite a few years ago, and that had a uh, that had an untimely death. Uh, that's captured in a great documentary called "Who Killed the Electric Car," but that's another story. So, interesting, interesting. Well,
0: I know you are a Marine. Um, we thank you for your service. We we love our um, men and women in uh, uniform. We uh, thank them for their service. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your book "Less Oil or More Caskets," and about um, how we can move away from using oil and invest in clean energy technology and how it's going to help our men and women in uniform.
2: Yeah, there's a there's a, a lot of numbers in, involved in this. And this came to – this is when I was the mayor. I started putting this together. I didn't write the book until I was done being the mayor. But the numbers started to fit together. And I, when you look at this, this makes a lot of sense on a lot of levels. Again, I was in the Gulf War, which was clearly only about oil. That's what that war was about back in 1991. But most people don't know the stats that I'm about to give you. 70% of the world's oil is used for transportation, which is mainly cars and trucks. 70% of the world's oil is used for that. So you have to think, what if we didn't need that? I can conceive of that. Some people can't. But I can conceive of that. It's because I'm driving it right now, and I know that there's more technology coming forward. We spend over $80 billion annually to protect the oil supply for the entire world. We do that. The United States does that. Our troops do that to the tune of $80 billion a year, about 15% of the defense budget. People don't know that at all. Uh, when I ask people, why are we are in the Middle East, I get blank stares. They just know we're in the Middle East. They really don't know why we're over there. We took over from the British in the early 70s to protect the oil supply for the entire world, and we've been doing that ever since. So that's a big part of this. Uh, also, look at who has the oil. Right? We've been fed... What's the word I want? I'll just say, I'll be kind and say misconceptions that we have a lot of oil in the United States. We produce a lot of oil in the United States here recently, but the fact is we don't have a lot of oil compared to anybody else. We have 2% of the world's oil reserves, maybe 3%. Uh, we're not even in the ball game. Uh, we just cracked the top 10 in world's oil reserves. Uh, We've been out of the top 10 for a long time. Uh, we're, we're not in the, we can't play the long game in this. And I, I hope people understand that also. And who, so who really has the oil? Well, the Middle East, Canada, and Russia come to mind. Uh, well, two of the three of those have caused us problems for decades now. Yep, yep. And they are funded primarily by oil. So we have to look at what we're doing. Why are we spending $80 billion a year to put our troops in harm's way? 7,000 people, 7,000 uh, servicemen and women have come home in caskets because of this over the last couple of decades or so we're spending $80 billion annually. That does not include the wars. That is not the wars. That is just the annual cost of the mission. So you add wars on that, we're probably in the neighborhood of $5 trillion or so. Uh, Brown university says we're at seven. So we have to, what are we doing here? We have to really, and so when you think at who is producing oil, and who are we protecting it for? And then you look at our long-held adversary in Russia, who is funded primarily by oil and gas. Why are we reluctant to move away? Why are we even fighting this? I think we should be sprinting toward moving toward electric vehicles and alternative vehicles, uh, alternative fuel vehicles, because it's a national security issue. And it's, that's what I wrote the book for, to, to alert people to that. This is really what's happening Because people don't know that 70% of the world's oil is used for transportation, that we spend $80 billion a year. And they 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 just don't know these sorts of stats uh, and what it has cost us. And so that's, just on a national security basis, this makes a lot of sense. I I realized back in 1991 in the Gulf War, couldn't do much about it. But now we can because we have the technology. It's getting better every day. We should be embracing it and not not shoving it aside.
0: Yeah, and we're seeing... Uh, we talked about this a little bit before the show, but we, we were seeing more companies coming out with electric vehicles. Um, we you know we've got the leader in the field in in America, Tesla, who's who's I think about got four different models on their way to five different models now. Um, we just saw in Ohio where a, a, a large uh, truck plant recently closed, um, and they started Lordstown Motors, which they're going to make electronic trucks. Uh, you know, Ford's coming out with an electronic version of the, the Mustang crossover. So are, in your opinion, are, are we going to see more and more American companies coming out with electric vehicles, and is, is this going to become a mainstream um, way of transportation? Um, and how do we bring more people to the table and seeing how this is it's, – it's not it, – it's a patriotic thing to, to get an electric vehicle. Um, you know, when you're buying a car and you're relying – on nobody but yourself to, to turn it on. Um, I mean, you're not relying on a foreign government's oil supply um, to power your car. Um, so how do we bring more people to the table with this? And are we going to see more EVs coming down the pipeline in America?
2: I think in within 10 years, I think you'll see half the people buying, uh, buying EVs. I, I do think within 20 years, the vast majority will. I, I, w- I would assume so. However, the world is moving there faster. And the, uh, my subsequent book, my, my, uh, my next book that's coming out on this issue really is uh, talking about four reasons why we mo- need to move to clean energy, uh, EVs being part, part of it. But, um, again, go back to who's producing the oil and the gas, that, uh, that is causing us so much trouble is really a problem. But the other, another piece of this is, besides the national security aspect, there's a global competitiveness issue. Tesla is the clear leader in technology across the world. Not much question about that. The Model Three, of which I have one, is the best-selling car around the world. Uh, people love it. There's a reason they love it. Uh, as I as I tell everybody, try to find a Tesla owner who doesn't love his car. It's very difficult to find because they're. And I just plug my car in at night in a 110 outlet. People think you have to do all these magical things. No, I just plug it in a 110 outlet at night every night. And that's all. You, and that's really all you have to do. You can do more if you want to, but you don't have to. But the biggest car market in the world is China. The biggest electric car market in the world is China. We have to understand that. And although they've they've had some fits and starts with their uh, uh, how they've rolled a lot of this out, a company called Geely bought Volvo. A Chinese company, Geely, now owns Volvo. China now has relationships with BMW and other German auto manufacturers. So they are getting tight into this because they want to upgrade the quality of it. So we have to be really careful that we're relying on Elon Musk to kind of do all of this. I hear these things coming forward with Ford and, uh, and Chevy and all this other stuff. And and, and, and I hope they get there, but they need to get there soon because the only company, the American company that's right now is competitive across the world is Tesla and our former big three and other companies are not really in the game. And yet, I hope everybody hears me when I say this. The world is moving to electric vehicles at a really rapid rate. It's just not happening in America other than in uh, the West Coast states and in the East Coast states. Pretty much it. Uh, in In the Southeast and in the Midwest, we seem to not catch on to this. And I don't know why, but if you go if you go to California right now, you're going to see tons of Teslas being driven out there. Uh, right now, I understand that about somewhere between six and eight percent of the new vehicles in Europe are plug-in cars. Plug-in cars didn't really start till nine years ago. That's at an extremely rapid rate uh, of a of adoption. It's happening. Tesla, to their credit, has built out an infrastructure for charging, and I've used them. I I've, tra- I've traveled to D.C. and back. Very simple. It's not only all over America. It's all over Europe. It's all over Asia. It's all over, all over Australia. Uh, they built out this infrastructure to to help uh, people feel comfortable with the cars. And like I say, Elon Musk is so far ahead of everybody else. But it's our car companies, even if you want to include, I know Honda and Toyota have a huge presence. I know they're Japanese companies, but they have a huge presence here in America they are way behind on this stuff. They say they're waiting for this and this. Okay, great, uh, but if we want the adoption of these cars to be faster, because our troops are in the Middle East, we're spending an enormous amount of dollars annually to protect the oil supply for the world. If we want to change that dynamic, then I want all these other companies to get on it and start moving in that direction. But I also I know what they're doing. They, I'm a I'm a business guy. I want them to make money too. We have to change people's perceptions on all this. But I'm here to tell you. That if you, if you go buy an electric car, particularly a Tesla, you're going to fall in love with the car. There's no maintenance dollars. I always joke that you rotate the tires and make sure there's windshield washer fluid in it. That's about all you have to do on these cars. And it's as easy as plugging it in like you plug in a lamp uh, at night. So there's not much to it uh, at all, and they're they a terrific car. So I, I just hope people understand that um, and 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 start moving in that direction because in the back of my mind, almost everything that I think about is, I don't want to go to war anymore, and I don't want our young men and women to have to go to war unless absolutely necessary. We are still fighting the wars. We are still have people, our people, in harm's way, all because we want to put gasoline in our cars.
1: Mm-hmm. And then yep. uh, one one thing that I thought was incredible that we saw: we visited a local microgrid company, and uh, one of the things we learned was in Afghanistan, nearly half the American uh, and nearly half the American deaths in Iraq and forty percent of the deaths in Afghanistan were just from uh, oil convoys, just transporting right. it across the desert. So, this uh, sort of renewable development, especially with the microgrids, there have been incredible.
2: But uh, one question: Can I, can I comment on that yeah. just real quickly, though? I in the Gulf War, I was I was a logistics officer primarily in the Marine Corps, so I was heavily involved in transportation. in The Gulf War, mm-hmm. half the oil used, I should say, half the fuel used in the Gulf war was used to move fuel. Wow. (laughs) All right. And that's a big burden. In fact, there's a a documentary out called the Burden" by Roger Sorkin. And I'm in, I'm in that documentary. That is a big burden during wartime Mm -hmm. is the cost the cost of getting fuel where it needs to be. And then moving it within the battlefield, the the theater, it's an enormous cost of fuel just to move fuel to get it where it needs to go. It's it's Mm -hmm. the cost is hundreds of millions.
1: Yeah, it's incredible because when we visited, it was called uh, mechanical engineering systems. They were talking about how they were designing new uh, microgrids for military bases and how when they transport oil, they can just slap solar panels on the top and then they don't have to try get more oil to transport oil. And that's like what you the, said.
2: That's what the military is trying to do is to lighten their their burden. They're lighten their their footprint because mm-hmm. it makes a lot more sense.
1: Yeah, that's great. So one question I had is. You're a national leader on energy. What's your advice for conservatives in Indiana like us? How can we help become leaders on this issue?
2: Well, I I think we have to see what's out there because uh, unfortunately we seem to not understand what's happening. When I was the mayor, I certainly tried to expand uh, everybody's knowledge in the state on this. And I think I did in the country also because I was clearly the leader in electric vehicles when I was the mayor of Indianapolis uh, for mayors across the country. No question about that. But but it's important for Indianapolis to understand Indianapolis and the state of Indiana to understand where this is going. It's going in this direction. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks it's going in this direction and you're either going to get run over by it or you're going to adopt it and, and get ahead of it and make it work for you. So that's, that's, I guess that's my, uh, that's my, uh, tale to tell here, but, not just on electric vehicles but solar and wind and Mm -hmm. everything else we we seem to be fighting this in the state of indiana and we don't seem to be helping ourselves in that regard and i think we need to do that and i think people in the state house need to understand this is going in that direction and i i read this stuff every day yeah and and we're changing it's changing as we speak
0: yeah and prices are continuing to come down i know we were talking a little bit too about um, you know, with electric vehicles in particular, um, how we need more competition to, to drive some of the costs down. But even the entry-level model Tesla, we can get that for around, you know, 42000 So it's pretty cost-competitive to other new cars on the market. But we need more um, uh, people in the mix producing cars. Um, yes, and yes I, we do. I think in the Midwest, too, I think there, there could be potential for a, a, a decent-sized market with some conservatives out there. Um, For electric vehicles, once they start and they're driving a lot, you know, with, you know, um, a lot of people commute, you know, 40 minutes, half hour to work every day. I mean, they don't want to pay for gasoline anymore than they have to. Um, So we need more American companies to buck up and start producing cars, uh, get enough competition into the marketplace, drive costs down. um, And I think it's really going to help. And I think people are going to like electric cars. Um, You know, we did polling for renewable energy, you know, wind and solar, utility scale, wind and solar uh, with conservatives explicitly. And, I mean, there's a lot of support for it out there. So I think there's a market, I really, really do, for electric cars. I think we just need more competition out there. We need more into the marketplace, and I think people are going to buy them. The, uh, uh,
2: the operational cost of a car, is, is the, the the capital cost, buying it is a little bit more expensive now, not a lot. Like you say, the, the instrumental uh, entry-level uh, Tesla, is around 40 or so 40 42 which is in line with the general cost of a new car but the operational cost is is incredible there's no maintenance that saves you thousands of dollars every year and and energy and electricity is way 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 cheaper than gasoline even when gasoline's like 250 it's still electricity is way cheaper so it operate these, to get the miles in your car, this is, it's a big difference.
0: So when you're, ch- you, you have an electric vehicle and you charge it every day. So what does your home uh, electric bill look like? Does that go on? Is that going up no. a lot? Okay. No,
2: I actually wouldn't. Um, we just moved, so I don't know where it is there, but I would tell you when I had the Chevy Volts before plug-in hybrid, we noticed no difference in the, in the, at all. Cause it just oh. trickles in overnight. Uh, when I got the, when I got both cars, a Tesla and a Volts, I don't have the Volts anymore, right? but But it, it went up minimally. I mean, here's an example when when you drive 100 miles on a regular car you're even at two bucks a gallon you're probably going to it's probably going to cost eight to ten dollars to go 100 miles something like that right maybe a little bit more depending on the price to go 100 miles in an electric car it's going to cost you about a buck and a half or two bucks so you decide <laughs> right right plus right. <laughs> plus plus virtually no maintenance costs none right
0: yeah that's that's awesome um yeah, I've I've had cars throughout the year that I mean they go you off know, you something to break down you know once a year and a thousand dollars in the shop. So yeah, I mean that's that's great to hear. Um, I'd Like to switch gears here a little bit, um, talk about your time as mayor of Indianapolis. Um, I know you established the office of sustainability. Um, I'd like to ask you about that a little bit and what why you started that and what did you accomplish with that office.
2: We we started that really because there was nothing like that in the city of Indianapolis. I thought we were behind other cities. And as I, as I tell a lot of folks, I, I was just trying to catch up to the other cities and I, I don't think I did anything overly radical. I think the, ex, with the exception of the EV where I think we were way ahead of most cities, uh, in the nation, everything else I did was kind of catching up. Let's, let's, let's make some sense of this stuff. What, what's going on here? So we, we put, we started with something called a green document, which, which, So when you want to build something in Indianapolis, you have to go through, you have to at least consider these parameters, uh, environmental parameters, which just made sense, right? It was was kind of a basic thing. We looked at urban gardens. We looked at uh, electric vehicles, where they made sense, where they made the cost conscious sense, obviously. We looked at um, a lot of those things and that I think other people were doing, the bicycle culture, uh, the rebuild any. Uh, money really helped create the bicycle culture around the city. Again, to attract talent, it's not because I like to ride bikes, it's because uh, we're trying to attract young talent into the city. That's And so all of the, all of these things just made a lot of sense to have an Office of Sustainability. We worked on flooding issues. We looked at all these things. That just made a lot of sense, and I just thought we were behind in the country, planted a lot of trees to keep Indianapolis beautiful, uh, just stuff that made a lot of sense that we weren't doing as a city, and that's that's really why we did that.
0: Yeah, and and to talk about somebody else who's doing some things out in in Washington, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I know uh, our Indiana Senator, Mike Braun, has been making some moves out in in D.C. with uh, um, some environment um, issues and and trying to bring more conservatives to the table with um, uh, the environment and sustainability, conservation um, I know you over the weekend had um, a great article in the, in the Indianapolis Star about Senator Braun. Um, would you mind talking to us a little bit about
2: that? Yeah, he is a serious man. There's no question about that. And uh, he's going to do what he thinks is right, and he's, he's made known to me and others uh, in a nice way, but he's, he wants to do what he believes to be right and what's the best long-term interest for Indiana and, and the country. And he, is, he understands this. I, I give him a lot of credit for uh, starting that caucus with Senator Coons. And uh, a bipartisan caucus that a lot of people now have have jumped on, including a lot of Republicans in the Senate, uh, which I I think is tremendous. And, you know, the first thing he's talking about is something to do with farmers to make sure they have access to uh, a carbon market, if you will. And I I just think that makes a lot of sense. It's going to make a lot of sense to the farmers, certainly. And I'm glad he's doing that sort of thing. It's our first step, uh, but it's something that's kind of overdue. And I'm I'm glad that he stepped up to the plate. And, And he's talked to me a little bit about this. And, I, and I, I like what he's doing, and I think they're going to do a lot more action in the Senate. And, and it's at the federal level where they can make a real difference in, in a lot of these different different areas. I just hope that they continue and that they listen to a lot of the grassroots. And I hope they follow the technology because the technology is moving rather rapidly right now, and we can make a real difference at the federal level.
0: Yeah, I um, completely agree. So what can we be doing here in Indiana? Um, I know you're, you're an Indianapolis guy, but what can we be doing in Indiana as a whole to improve our renewable energy um, uh, marketplace, you know, wind and solar? And how can we expand our use of, of electric vehicles? What should we be doing at the state house and at the local level? Um, and how can conservatives engage on this issue?
2: Yeah, there is a lot of a lot of issues in that. The first of all, we have to stop passing legislation that makes no sense. A few years ago, that Senate Bill three hundred nine virtually killed the solar market in the state of Indiana, and it was a ridiculous bill. And I have no idea why they passed it. Uh, I it, it was obviously at somebody's behest, but uh, that you know is a silly. For instance, it goes against our own principles, right? The, the, the main part of that bill was not ne- the net metering, which is what everybody lashed onto in the press. The main part of that bill that I thought was ridiculous was that it codified the fact that if I live in Hancock County and I have a solar farm or a wind farm or something, I can't sell my electricity to somebody in Shelby County. So why is that against the law? But it is here in conservative state of Indiana. Isn't that kind of against our principles? I think it is. If I got a solar farm in Hancock County and I can't sell anybody my electricity in Shelby County, what is that? But that's in Indiana law right now. That's the sort of thing that is ridiculous. And if they always say they don't want subsidies for these things, okay, great. But you're obviously subsidizing the other side on that one. Uh, And it it kind of sent a signal around the country that Indiana is not welcoming to renewable energy. So we have to stop passing these nonsense bills that, uh, that really kill this because as I recall, I'm not sure about 2020, but I know 2019 and, and before, the two fastest growing jobs in America were wind turbine technician and solar vo- photovoltaics uh, installer. Two fastest growing jobs in America for the last few years. And yet we seem to be going against that. So that's, I think that's a real problem. So we need to make sure that this makes sense because solar and wind, as you mentioned, is going down in cost rapidly. I mean, dramatically dramatically. And a lot of people want these uh, want these type, type of energy. I always talk about companies, their employees, younger employees, particularly are looking for that company to use solely renewable energy. So it's a it's a talent attraction issue also. We have to get that a talent attraction issue also. Uh, for electric vehicles, I you know we got forty one million. This is I'm just going to say this publicly. Forty one million dollars of that Volkswagen money, Dieselgate. That's what it was called, Dieselgate, around the world, $41 million. On the first iteration of of grants from the Dieselgate money, the state of Indiana bought diesel vehicles. (laughs) I could not believe it. They bought some other stuff, but they also bought (laughs) diesel vehicles with the Dieselgate money. Are you kidding? That's nuts. That's money that was primarily used for electric vehicles, right? Two, America got $2 billion. California got $800 million, but the rest of it was doled out. We got $41 million. We, sh- we should be using that pr- money primarily to entice people to and organizations, school corporations, whatever, to move to electric transportation. We should also be using that money to build an infrastructure for level three charging around the state, in concert with Michigan, Illinois, Kentucky, and the states and Ohio, and all those states around us, to build a transit corridor for level three charging—that's kind of what that money was designed to do. And and for some reason, that is lost on us. And I would I would suggest to you that the people I, I I don't know what what they're thinking in, in this regard, but uh, I mean I followed those Dieselgate money from a long time ago, but it it's just not what we're doing with that money makes no sense, and we should use that money. To what it was really intended for which was to move toward electricity as a as a transportation fuel
1: mr mayor i just have to ask excuse me
0: um were they buy buses is that what it was they bought
2: some buses i think propane buses which is a step a, a little bit better but uh some some organizations i can't remember what, it's been six months since i've seen it but uh but it, there was diesel vehicles for particular companies or organizations that and that we bought that's amazing that it, wow. isn't that unbelievable <laughs> <laughs> we bought diesel vehicles with the Dieselgate money uh, that we got as part of the Volkswagen settlement. Because may, people may not know that Volkswagen uh, got caught fudging numbers for their diesel vehicles, pollution numbers for the, and they got massive fines around the world. And America got a large portion of that. Indiana got forty-one million dollars. And, and
0: we all got a diesel vehicles. And we got uh, we <laughs> bought
2: some diesel vehicles with that Dieselgate money. Wow. Okay. Um,
0: yeah, and, and just to, to, to piggyback off, um, you know, the investment in Indiana, I know there's there's tons of renewable energy companies in particular that want to invest in Indiana. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we talk about how we're the state that works, we're the state that's open to business. Um, we want people coming here. We want more talent. Um, but we need to make sure that the renewable energy sector is welcomed here in Indiana um, and that we are making it a fair place to do business for them as well as it is for other energy companies too. As well, um, you know, we're not picking winners or losers here. We're letting the the free market uh, pick winners and losers, and we're letting it dictate, um, you know, by cost uh, which energy providers we we're able to use. Um, you know, we don't we don't want to go all in on, on one thing. That's kind of a bad idea. We want to make sure that we kind of have a diverse energy portfolio, but one that incorporates a good amount of uh, wind and solar. Um, and it's for all the issues we've discussed here today, it's going to help with our national security. It's going to help bring troops home out of harm's way in the Middle East. It's going to get us out of, of, of frankly, bloody foreign wars that mm-hmm. we don't need to be in if we can produce our own electricity here at home, power our cars with renewable energy power with energy that we have here in America. Um, And it's going to be beneficial to, to everybody. Um, And Mr. Mayor, um, I'd like to, before we wrap up here, I'd like to talk about um, what, what do you have coming down the pipeline? What are you working on now? What are we going to anticipate coming out um, from you in the future?
2: Well, I am working on a, a, uh, like I say, another book and uh, talking about the, really the four reasons, uh, to move to clean energy across the board, not just, uh, not just transportation, but it is, there is pollution. There's a climate. Those are two different issues. Uh, if you don't believe it, I, I'm sorry, it's true, but the pollution is issue is a huge issue also. And, and even Milton Friedman, the, uh, esteemed Pulitzer, uh, Nobel prize winning, uh, conservative economist said there are externalities involved with, with, uh, our use of energy. And he said that a long time ago. And, and so we don't even include that in the cost that you were talking about, but we don't even include the externalities it's about uh, loss of productivity, increased health care costs and everything caused pollution. So, but that's one reason. So pollution, there's climate, there's obviously national security, as, as I talked about, not just for us, but for other nations. Uh, because, like I say, Russia does a lot of bad things, and Europe kind of looks aside because Europe needs Russia's oil and gas. Yeah.
1: Yeah, because I know Germany is like wholly dependent on Russian natural gas.
2: Yeah, so so you can't blame them for trying to move to renewables, but this is a that's a big issue, and I I think America would want to lead in moving away from those things so that we can bankrupt Russia. That's a noble and lofty (laughs) goal, in my opinion. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So uh, so you got pollution, climate, you got uh, national security. The other one is global competitiveness. Uh, We touched on that a little bit. uh, That right now only Tesla is is leading the way on this and they are the global leader no question mm-hmm. but other companies are moving pretty aggressively in this direction so do we want to own the vehicle market of the future do we or do we not because right now you know if elon musk had an immigrated from south africa we wouldn't we wouldn't be anywhere on this issue and we would we would absolutely be getting run over right now and we have to understand that that other countries particularly china is leading in this field right now in the world and are we going to allow that to happen we can it'll hurt us i think it will you talk about jobs we all talk about jobs right jobs are really important to us but you have to understand that those are where the jobs are going to go you you can talk about this all the time and and i and i got we can talk about jobs all the time and and there's going to be a disruption. No question about that and all this stuff. Even for all those four reasons, you know, pollution, climate, national security, global competitiveness, there's going to be a disruption of jobs. And we have to understand that. But there's always disruption of jobs. How many milkmen are on a horse right now delivering, <laughs> right? How many, who, who uses a horse primarily for transportation? You know, all, all these things change. The microprocessor changed how we do administrative work across the world. All these things change us. Look at your phone right now. Look at, look what? So are some jobs going to be lost? Yes. But look what the phone did. Uh, Yellow pages. Who makes yellow pages anymore?
0: Operators, yeah.
2: uh, Not just telephone. The film industry. Uh, The camera industry in particular. Think of how many jobs were lost because of we wanted to put that phone in our pocket with all this technology. Mm -hmm. Wasn't a a lot of hate and discontent around that. But the fact is... Thousands of people had to change into better or different jobs. That's what's going to happen with clean energy also. So don't, you know, I I, I think we're uh, not doing us any favors by telling the coal communities that they're going to be around in 20, 30 years. They're not. If they are, it's going to be extremely minimal. We should be retraining those communities right now. And I mean right now because those are not going to be here in another generation and we just have to get that. People say that these jobs that we, we mature economies always lose jobs when new technology arises. That's just part of it and we have to get that and understand that. And then but we have to the government has to do their part and retrain these people so they can get these better jobs because all this technology has changed in the last 20, 30, 40 years and yet our economy is stronger than ever because we adjusted to it and we'll adjust to this one too. We will.
0: Yeah, and that's how good companies survive too. Is the 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 willingness to be able to pivot and adapt to the changing circumstances. I know, not to not to go down a rabbit hole here, but I mean, you look at Sears, the company who came out with the mail order catalog, now almost ceases to exist, while we have Amazon, who essentially does the same thing just by you know digital means. Um, so being able to adapt to the climate is so important to to keeping businesses alive. And our government needs to do its job too. Um, And and to speak to coal workers specifically, we love our coal workers. We want them to to have good jobs in the future. We don't want them to to sit around worrying that they're not going to have a job in 10, 20 years. We want these people to be able to support their family and to to graduate from high school, go into a good job, secure job that's going to be here. Um, I feel terrible personally that, that, you know, a whole industry might go away and it probably will go away, but we need to make sure it's a top priority for our workforce development to make sure that these people are transitioning into better jobs. This shouldn't be seen as a bad thing. It should be seen as a good thing. Um, you know, we want people to go into to, to a better place. So, And we've done it
2: mm-hmm. over the entire history of our country, and it's particularly mm-hmm. in the last 40, 50 years. I mean, everybody loves their co- our co-workers, no question, but... It's changing. It yeah. is going to change, and to, to ignore that is 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 at their peril, not our peril, uh-huh. but their peril. We need to help them transition.
1: Yeah, because well, one thing a lot of people don't understand is that solar power plants have actually dropped in cost 90% in the last 10 years, while uh, onshore wind has dropped 70%. So uh, that's why right. Indiana and utilities are choosing for economic reasons to develop new wind and solar projects, because it's actually... Uh, less expensive to build new solar and wind projects than continue to run seventy-four percent of our existing U.S. coal plants, which are antiquated right. and sixty, seventy-plus right. years old.
2: And the cost is still going to go down even more on solar and wind. Mm-hmm. But again, when battery technology gets to a certain point, if we can, if the utility scale batteries can handle three or four days of storage of solar and wind, um, that's it's all going that way immediately. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and, and, I mean, you look around. We were just at the, the construction site of a, a wind farm up in Warren County last week. Um, Next era uh, Energy Company building their Jordan Creek wind farm. Um, and you look around, and at the sustainability of one of those wind farms versus um, the upkeep and the cost of maintaining a, uh, tr- we'll, we'll just call it a traditional energy source, um, is so much lower. Um, you, you go around, I mean, there's just mi- there's minimal upkeep. And, I mean, it, 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 on top of that, the the people in the community see immense benefits of having the development in their community. We look across Indiana, um, and there's some areas that have just been plainly forgotten about um, in rural Indiana. And having the ability for these energy companies to come in, lift up the community, and, and give them a sense of hope that they're going to be able to have a steady source, a supplemental source of income on top of their farming costs. Um, it, you know, we look at this year, we've got an oversupply of corn. We, 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 it's going to be so hard for our farmers to sell corn this year. Um, but if, if they have the ability to, to get a supplemental income off of re, a renewable energy company, that's fantastic.
2: Wind uh, Farmers love wind turbines. <laughs> it's it's good, do. easy money. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Well, Mr. Mayor, I I really appreciate you coming on today. This has been a great conversation. Um, And this concludes our episode of the Indiana Energy Crossroads podcast. We look forward to speaking with you each week about how conservatives are advancing clean energy here in Indiana.